Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, November 11th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me again today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. After issuing an order on Halloween last week, blocking the Penguin Random House Simon & Schuster merger, this week, Judge Florence Pan released her full written opinion. And in your article for PW, Andrew, you wrote that in the end, the decision wasn't even a close one. Yeah, that's right. On November 7th, Judge Florence Pan released her memorandum opinion blocking Penguin Random House from acquiring rival Big Five publisher Simon & Schuster. And indeed, in the final analysis, after a year of legal wrangling and a three-week trial that captivated the publishing industry back in August, it really wasn't a close call at all, at least not for Judge Pan. Uh, In an economical, clearly written 80-page decision, Pan easily found that the Department of Justice made its case that the proposed merger would likely lessen competition in the market for book rights in violation of Section 7 of the Clayton Act. And in the process, the judge shredded each of the publisher's defenses. Now, the full opinion comes uh, a week after Pan released her final order blocking the merger uh, with a delay to allow for a few minor redactions of confidential information. And you know, I think observers were not surprised by the court's decision last week, given that Judge Pan appeared pretty skeptical at trial of the proposed merger. At the same time, I think the unfamiliar monopsony claims at the heart of this case had left some observers unsure of how this case would actually go and what the opinion would look like. Well, for the government, for the DOJ, it all played out just fine in, in Judge Pan's ruling. After the trial in August, Andrew, you reported that observers inside and outside publishing concluded that Judge Pan was not keen to see this merger happen. Yet somehow uncertainty remained over how the court would rule. And now we see there wasn't any reason for it. Why? Yeah. So, you know, you remember that this case was like not based on potential consumer harm that flowed from a monopoly. It was about harm to authors who the government argued would have faced lower advance payments and less favorable contract terms uh, if these two top buyers of those rights, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, were allowed to merge. Most cases that we see in antitrust are monopoly cases, right? A monopoly, of course, occurs when one firm becomes the dominant sole supplier of a good or a service in a given market. Uh, This is, of course, far more common. So people are used to those. Monopsony cases like this one, on the other hand, occur when one firm becomes the sole or dominant buyer of goods or service. In other words, think of the authors in this case as suppliers to the publishers. And the publisher's market for buying rights here was going to be impacted by having fewer bidders for those book rights and especially impacted by having one dominant firm at the top of the market that would negatively impact negotiations. Now, That monopsony claim is not an unfamiliar claim, right? The Authors Guild has been arguing that this is the effect of consolidation in publishing for decades. But I think if people were unsure how this case was going to actually play out, I just think it's because we haven't seen it before. I mean, here you had the world's largest English language trade publisher requiring the number three trade publisher, resulting in this one huge mega firm. And based on sheer size alone – I think people looked at this and were like, well, God, that's got to be monopolistic and anti-competitive, right? Absolutely. There's no way a firm that big can be allowed to happen. And yet here was the DOJ putting forth this really 
unfamiliar monopsony claim that challenged the merger, not based on that obvious sheer size of the firm, but based on the idea that the Stephen King's and the Danielle Steele's or the Kardashians or other celebrities might have to deal with lower advance payments. Uh, but in the end, Judge Pan found that the DOJ's approach to this case was highly effective. And in her final opinion, she delivered a decisive victory for the government that really could signal a change in how regulators view not only consolidation in the publishing industry, but in other markets as well. Share with me your reading of how Judge Pan viewed the DOJ's case and the publisher's defense. You've been cautious about whether she would find enough solid ground in the law to block the merger, but apparently that was not an issue for the court. Yeah, it was not at all. You know, and I'd go as far to say that the publisher's key defense in this case was the law, right? Was that this small segment, the focus of the government on this small segment of authors, um, which was legally defined by the government as anticipated top selling books, that that focus was not legally sound. You know, at trial, uh, PRH lead attorney Daniel Petricelli called this the great shrinking case, right? Because, you know, the DOJ started out with this huge merger and ended up focusing on this really small segment of authors with advances over $250,000. For one, Petrocelli argued that's less than 2% of all authors. And on top of that, you know, the DOJ doesn't really understand how the publishing industry operates. So they got that wrong too. Uh, If publishers were going to prevail in this case, they really needed to convince the court that books with advances over 250,000, the small segment of best-selling authors, well, that that was just a price segment and that it wasn't a legally cognizable submarket. But Judge Pan rejected that argument fairly easily uh, and supported it with a lot of case law and ended up finding that the government's use of high advances as a proxy for anticipated book sales was actually sound legally, logically, and that it was supported by, and I'll quote her here, market realities. Um, She has this great line. Let me see if I can find this right here from the decision. The court has no trouble recognizing that anticipated top-selling books are distinct from the vast majority of books that do not carry the same expectations for success. And it is precisely those specialized needs that make authors of anticipated top-selling books vulnerable to targeting for price reductions. Publishers of anticipated top-selling books know that such authors are not able to find adequate substitutes for publishing their books because of their unique needs and preferences. And that's it in a nutshell. You know, Pan captures the idea that best-selling authors need publishers that can market and sell and print enough copies to earn the money that these authors expect to make. And, you know, it took Judge Pan just a few pages to lay out her findings there. And as soon as she did, as soon as she ruled that this was a, a legal submarket that the government could use, well, that was it. That was game, set, and match for the PRH-SNS merger. Because once Pan found the government's defined relevant market was legally sound and based on market reality, the next step for Judge Pan was to assess whether competition in that submarket was impacted. And all of the metrics that uh, Judge Pan had available to her both the ones calculated by the government's expert witness, Dr. Nicholas Hill, and using this sort of prime antitrust metric called the Herfindahl-Hirschman Index, or the HHI, that all of those metrics were off the charts, showing that this merger was very, very much presumptively anti-competitive. The post-merger entity would have had a, and I'll quote Pan again here, a concerningly high 
49% market share. That's more than twice of its closest competitor in an already concentrated publishing market. And that's important. She noted that this, that the publishing industry is an industry where the top two competitors in the market, if this deal had gone through, would have held 74% market share. And the top four, that's the big four that would have been left after this deal, would have controlled 91% of the market for best-selling books, clearly presumptively illegal. At trial, PRH attorneys tried to convince the court that the competition for book rights would not be impacted and that the deal would, in fact, be pro-competitive. Judge Pan appeared to have no trouble dispatching with those arguments either. Yeah, no trouble at all, in fact. In fact, Pan devoted less than 19 pages of the opinion to the defendant's rebuttal arguments, really easily dispatching with PRH and SNS's arguments that, you know, there was this array of indie publishers and new entrants and strong literary agents and, and internal competition between in-house, between SNS and PRH editors that were all going to keep competition for book rights robust. And she easily dismissed the argument. I thought it was really telling that the idea that PRH and SNS editors would continue to bid against one another. Uh, our listeners may recall that PRH CEO Marcus Doley pledged to allow that competition to continue. He issued this statement to that effect. Well, that actually backfired because Judge Pan, in the opinion, called out that statement, calling it an extraordinary pledge that reflected Doley's awareness of how threatening the combined entity would be to authors and agents. And, you know, what's interesting here, too, is that the opening 22 pages of the opinion, maybe a few more, are dedicated to Judge Pan basically reciting her understanding of how the book business works. And, you know, she was showing the lawyers for both sides that, look, I'm not at all confused by your funny little industry. And I have to say, she really nailed it. Uh, Judge Florence Pan showed a very firm grasp on how publishing functions. And that's important because it's clear that part of the defense's strategy was to present the industry as this sort of inscrutable business with these funny customs and quirky ways of doing things. And in fact, that's the same game plan that worked for PRH lead attorney Daniel Petricelli in his 2018 defense of the AT&T Time Warner merger. In that case, Petricelli successfully sowed confusion about things like cord cutting and the internet and the streaming market. And, you know, Judge Richard Leon in that case really sort of bought it. But, you know, book publishing is not the streaming market, right? There's really no unknowns here. There's no changing technology. There's no fast-paced innovation. We're talking about a mature market when it comes to books. And Judge Pan, who was clearly very, very sharp, and I say this judging by the way she ran the trial – she showed that she had no trouble seeing through the defense's attempt to confuse her with customs in the industry and that she understood exactly how the book business functions. Uh, and our listeners at trial remember the defense sort of struggling to put witnesses on the CEOs of the various houses, et cetera, who, would, you know, who said also that it was going to be difficult to predict which books would become bestsellers. And they put agents on who claimed that you know, these agents had enough power to keep competition in check. Again, Pan swatted all of that away very easily. And in a blistering section of the opinion, she really showed that she understands the book business because she took on the state of consolidation in the industry. And she even called out the major publishers for their actions a decade ago in the Apple ebook price fixing case. Indeed, in this opinion, Judge Pan had a sobering assessment of consolidation in publishing. Tell us about that, Andrew, and whether you think those words might have some impact beyond the case. 
Yeah, this is very, very interesting because Penn's assessment of consolidation in the industry really wasn't much of a factor in deciding this case, simply because the facts of this merger on the math alone made it presumptively anti-competitive. But she went there anyway. And for those in the industry, especially authors who have been shouting about the effects of consolidation for decades, well, here finally is a federal judge at long last saying, I hear you. You know, specifically, Penn started by citing the publisher's previous actions in the Apple ebook price fixing case. Uh, and she noted that, you know, it's significant that in a market, and I'm going to quote her here again, that's already prone to collusion, where coordinated conduct already appears to be rampant, that Penguin Random House's acquisition of Simon & Schuster would reinforce the market's oligopsonic, <laughs> oligopsonistic structure. I'm sorry, I always stumble over that word. Now, she was raising this to say that if a merger was allowed, the combined firms would have the size and power to sort of coordinate other changes in publishing that would not necessarily benefit authors. And the, to me, like the really the, the most important thing here is that she concluded and she talked about how there's already evidence that the big five are coordinating conduct, you know, right now without this merger. She pointed out the standardization of certain contract terms, right? Those involving payment structure, audio rights, and ebook royalties, on uh, all of these coming in ways that favor authors, or excuse me, favor publishers over authors. And she suggested that the top publishers have engaged in, again, coordinated conduct to make these changes possible. For example, advances used to be paid in two installments, she noted. And then uniformly, all these publishers moved to paying them in three installments and then four installments, the net effect of which was to hurt authors by delaying their compensation and to give you know, publishers the advantage of, of drawing out these payments. And she cited one particularly interesting illustrative example from the evidence, an example in which Simon & Schuster officials refused to bid on a highly sought-after book. I can't tell you the book because it was redacted, but the agent for this book had attempted to withhold audio rights. And in an email, a Simon & Schuster editor noted that, look, all the other big five publishers also had this, quote-unquote, no audio, no deal rules. And this editor firm, Simon & Schuster, questioned whether any of the other big five houses were going to join the auction without audio rights included. Well, ultimately, Pan noted, the agent was forced to restart the auction with audio rights included. Now, what does this all mean about all this stuff about consolidation and coordination already going on in the publishing industry? It's hard to say because this is just you know one opinion from one judge. But if Simon & Schuster does go back on the market, as we expect it will, and another big five publisher steps up to try to buy it, there will clearly be more scrutiny on whether the deal should be allowed. In fact, in an investor call this week, HarperCollins CEO Brian Murray acknowledged as much. You know, HarperCollins would, of course, love to have Simon & Schuster. And while Murray told investors that he was quite pleased with the ruling, he acknowledged that if his firm was to try to acquire Simon & Schuster when it came back on the market – that acquisition would be a little more complicated, though he stressed certainly not impossible. With the full decision now public, Andrew, do you think we will see an appeal or possibly a new suitor for SNS? What do you hear? Well, an appeal, I think, remains a complicated question. You know, we talked about this uh, last week a little bit. Both Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster would have to agree. And if you're Simon and Schuster, at some point. You really have to think about whether you want to drag this out in court and, of course, whether you think you can win if you do drag it out in court. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen with the appeal. I will say that I really feel for the employees of Simon & Schuster who enter another year 
of not really knowing their fate. The merger was first announced in 2020, and here we are heading into 2023, and it's still not completed. So that, that has to be tough on the employees for Simon & Schuster. As for what this decision might mean for any appeal, well, I spoke to some lawyers this week, and they all told me that it probably makes it a little bit harder because the facts of this case are really laid out here, and not a lot of the facts here are in dispute. Uh, and Pan showed a very firm grasp on how the publishing industry works and the ease with which uh, Judge Pan dispatched with the legal question here about market definition also suggests there might not be that much room to fight on that as well. That said, all of the lawyers also stressed to me, and I said it before and I'll say it again, this is one judge in one court. Uh, and it is possible that if you get this before a panel of you know grizzled circuit judges in Washington, D.C., that that might yield a new outcome or a different outcome. Whether that is an outcome you want to or might want to fight for remains to be seen. You know, and finally, last week, you know, I suggested that no matter what, more consolidation was probably coming in the industry. I'm questioning that a little bit after reading Judge Penn's uh, opinion, because, you know, it's it seems that she has voiced a number of concerns about consolidation in the industry that might make future consolidation more difficult. At the same time, too, it, this, this decision might convince an outside buyer or a foreign buyer that they have the best chance to land uh, Simon & Schuster rather than another big five. That's all speculation. But again, the lawyers I talked to this week tell me that they still believe that another big five publisher could land Simon & Schuster. And, and remember, it's an open question whether the DOJ would even challenge one of those deals. Uh, as HarperCollins CEO Brian Murray said on this call this week, the PRH acquisition was different, right? Because Penguin Random House was already a towering entity among the big five. They were already by far the biggest. And combining them with Simon & Schuster just would have put them out of reach. It would have, to quote Penn, cement them at the top of the publishing industry. For a future deal that might involve HarperCollins or Hachette, or even Macmillan, which I don't think Macmillan is in the market. But even then, I, I think, you know, the math would look quite different. And that's exactly what Murray said. He said, remember, you know, we are a different publisher and that the math is going to look quite different. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Anyway, we'll know more soon about Penguin Random House's decision, whether they're going to keep fighting or whether they're going to walk away. So stay tuned. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer. Thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the Copyright Clearance Center channel. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC.